Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito here with Retina Synthesis, and our guest today is Dr. Yasha Modi, who is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the New York University Langone Medical Center in New York City. Yasha, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a, it's just a privilege to be here. And, you know, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about a retinal vein occlusion, and I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. So uh, a lot, there's been lots of evidence from the both publicly funded and privately funded research, clinical research on vein occlusion. But let's talk a little bit about some basics before we get into therapeutics, and that is evaluation of the eye. In patients with branch occlusion, vein occlusion, what is your ophthalmic and uh, medical assessment of these patients? Well, I think it always starts with vision and pressure. I think uh, it's really, really important to know their vision because that's oftentimes the best prognostic factor for how they'll do at one month, six months, and a year. Uh, then pressure gives you some understanding, especially if there's asymmetry and pressure as to whether or not there may be signs for neovascularization of the angle. And that's a really, really important cue that you can use just before you even see the patient. And then of course, a good evaluation of the iris, and then also an examination of the retina. And you know, we know the classic features. If there's a CRVO, you can have disc edema, you can have hemorrhages in all four quadrants. And then there's sort of the venous dilation and tortuosity that is sort of the classic picture you know, I think the acute findings of retinal vein occlusion, CRVO and BRVO, I feel like first year residents can nail it immediately. The hard part is actually when they become chronic and then all of the hemorrhages go away, all of the, the disc edema goes away, the tortuosity improves somewhat. And then you really have to use vascular remodeling as sort of the guides to help you. So if you're, you know, in one way that's really, really helpful is actually looking at a red free that allows you to understand uh, sort of uh, vessels crossing the RAFE and then also OCTA if it's available is a really, really cool tool to help understand uh, anastomosis. So if you have a, a, an eye with a, a branch or hemi or central vein occlusion, do you do fluorescein angiography, uh, OCT angiography, wide field OCT angiography, uh, fluorescein angiography, what do you do? I think that's a great question. I, I, and you know, I, I sort of put my, I put on two hats when I answer this question. I think hat one is the, I'm a practical clinician and I know if they have macular edema, I'm gonna to treat to that endpoint. And so therefore maybe imaging outside of an OCT is not that necessary. On the other hand, I am a uh, full-time uh, academic at NYU. So my brain wants to know a couple of things. I want to understand the extent of non-perfusion. And there's some really, really great papers looking at the sort of what was called the ocular ischemic index, um, uh, where essentially uh, this is ultra wide field imaging. So you get very, very broad uh, areas of the retina. And what we know is that the more ischemic the ratio is, the more ischemic the the areas of non-perfusion to the total area of retina, the more likely they are to go on to neovascularization. So that's sort of a prognostic factor. It helps me talk to the patient about compliance. It helps me start to understand the disease a little bit more. You know, think about like the BVOS and the CVOS, right? The definition of ischemic was five disc diameters of non-perfusion in the BVOS and 10 in the CVOS. 
But what we're starting to see on ultra wide field imaging is like 40, 60, 100 disc diameters of non-perfusion. That's a totally different ball game. And, and having that insight, I think just provides me more information. So the answer is almost overwhelmingly, I do get a fluorescein angiogram, but I also recognize that practically, especially if I'm treating macular edema, it's not necessary. So will you use the Optos uh, wide field angiogram as your preferred tool or not? Yes, and I love that for essentially all retinal vascular disease, you know, a diabetic disease, retinal vein occlusion. It provides you the most incredible wealth of information. You know, we learned that a little bit in diabetic disease with predominantly peripheral lesions as a way to, uh, you know, potentially identify more severe forms of DR. So I started using it for that tool. And then I started now using it more for understanding basically the ocular ischemic ratio, like that we're talking about this index ratio uh, for non-perfusion and retinal vein occlusion. What about medical evaluation? It's a great question. So first, low-hanging fruit, right? What's their age, right? And I think that I sort of break this down as to 50 and younger and 50 and older. And so the paradigm is if they're 50 and older, if they have high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, if they have glaucoma, those are all risk factors for RVO. And in my opinion, I don't think those individuals need necessarily a workup. On the other hand, what if you have a 25-year-old who now has a CRVO? It's a pretty unusual circumstance, right? And so those are individuals where good medical history is important. You want to understand if they had you know, prior DVTs, any spontaneous miscarriages. You want to look for inborn causes of hypercoagulability. And that can be done uh, you know, if you have a sort of a smart phrase in Epic where you can draw some blood, or if you can link to a, a really good hematologist that you trust and has some understanding of CRVO and what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. What about, um, going back to imaging for a, a moment, what's the role of OCT angiography in these eyes? Yeah, it's, uh, so that's a, that's a really great question. And I think for me, I use OCT angiography in those circumstances where maybe there's a branch retinal vein occlusion that occurred a few years ago, and maybe they come in with a sort of a minor vitreous hemorrhage, but I really can't see well enough to understand what's the driver of that vitreous hemorrhage. Sometimes OCT angiography can help me see collaterals. And then if I know if I have collaterals, then, uh, then I know very likely uh, sort of distal to that, I'm likely to have some NVE, some neovascularization that's driving the hemorrhage. So I love the use of OCT angiography for collaterals. Unfortunately, like many diseases like diabetic retinopathy and retinal vein occlusion, we would sort of think of maybe if you had enlargement of the foveal avascular zone, that would portend a poor prognostic factor, but there's not a good linear correlation between size of the FAZ and vision. Obviously, if it's massively enlarged, then there's gonna be a significant decline in vision, but it's not a linear relationship. So good for diagnostic value, not so much at the moment for prognostic value. Mm -hmm. So now that we've made our diagnosis, let's talk about management of branch vein occlusion to begin with. Yeah. What are your indications for treatment? Let's say the patient comes in, has a vein occlusion, vision's 2015. Mm -hmm. I've noted a little bit of uh, visual field change, but their central acuity is perfect. Yeah. Uh, are, are you gonna treat that patient? That's, that's a watch patient. You know, those are people that we watch. Uh, and I think a this is the patient where I love fluorescein angiogram, especially ultra wide field FA, because 
what you're trying to do is understand how they lose vision. And if you understand the degree of ischemia or non-perfusion, that will help you understand what's their likelihood of progressing onto neovascularization. So that's sort of really important for me at this point, but this is observation. And the more ischemic it is, the more concerned I am and the closer I'm following these patients. So what are your indications for starting treatment, branch vein occlusion? How do you treat the patient? And yeah, so what's essentially, your regimen? Uh, symptomatic macular edema. And almost always they're symptomatic if, it, if it's foveal involving, right? So center involving macular edema is really what we're looking at for treatment. And I think from the SCORE2 study, my go-to is using bevacizumab as first line. And then it, typically, you know, especially if it's acute disease, we understand very, very quickly whether they're going to have a response to it. So the vast majority of individuals do have a positive response. And then on the other hand, if they don't have a positive response or if they can't get out to a long enough treatment interval, then we can try a, a more potent anti-VEGF like ILEA. And then if we don't have a response, even then, then the final sort of solution would be moving on to a steroid, something like a intravitreal dexamethasone implant. Mm -hmm. What's your treatment interval to begin with? Oh, with every, every four weeks, every four weeks. And I understand that, you know, some of my, um, uh, my colleagues will actually try to do every five, especially if they're worried about trying to get in on the 28 day window, but I'm, I'm very much of a purist. I, I really just start every four weeks and then I extend beyond that. And how, how long do you keep the every four weeks going? So I, I started treating extend immediately. So for those who are familiar with the score two, the score two actually uh, study was looking at a bevacizumab versus a flipercept. And for the first six months, they were getting monthly therapy. But what's, what's interesting about the score two study is not so much the first six months, in my opinion, but rather the latter six months. And in those groups they had, for those who responded well in the first six months, they basically were on a, a standing treatment versus a treat and extend. And what we learned in that window is that treat and extend uh, does very, very well for maintaining the gains that they had gained in the monthly window. So while we don't have really solid evidence showing that uh, initial treat and extend makes sense, I think that's a very, very reasonable way to go about following these patients in clinical practice that provides a good compromise between sort of efficacy and then managing sort of patient expectations and number of visits and trying to sort of maximize their time away from the clinic. Let's, let's move on to talking about central vein occlusion. Now we, 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 we talked, you talked about the score two trial. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the SCORE2 trial? Yeah, so it was an a NEI-funded trial, uh, and uh, this is a study looking, in the beginning, uh, it was a few hundred patients, and it looked at patients, uh, it randomized patients who either had a CRVO or HRVO, and uh, it sort of lumped those two together, and they either received a, a Vastin or Ilium. And it was monthly for the first six months, and then it, uh, that was the primary outcome was, uh, it was a non-inferiority study looking at visual acuity at six months. And what they had determined was that bevacizumab was non-inferior to aflipercept. So that's sort of the language that they use. So a non-inferiority study means you have to, at the end, 
is one going to be inferior to the other? That's the outcome. And, and so it didn't hit that endpoint. So that's why the kind of unusual language per se that maybe for those who are not familiar with clinical trials, but as to why it says non-inferior rather than saying it's not superior. But anyways, you move on from this six months, there were then three arms to each of those groups. So in the bevacizumab arm after six months, they kind of broke down into three uh, three groups based on whether they were a good responder or poor responder. So say somebody has no macular edema, they're doing great. So half of those patients were put on to monthly, they continued on monthly in their respective arm. So if they were getting bevacizumab, they continued to get it. If they had aflipercept, they continued to get aflipercept. And then they were either then going into the monthly or the treat and extend arm. But the real interesting arm in both of these was what happens if they did poorly? And so if essentially aflipercept patients did poorly, they were, they were given the opportunity to switch to intravitreal dexamethasone. And if patients were doing poorly in the bevacizumab arm, they were given the opportunity to get aflipercept. And so what happened in the last six months was something that was kind of interesting. So the treat and extend patients did just as well as the monthly patients, but they received fewer injections as you would imagine. Uh, the aflipercept arm received marginally fewer injections in the treatment extend than the bevacizumab, meaning probably they were at a longer treatment interval at the end of it. And then for those who didn't do well, whether they were switched from bevacizumab to aflipercept or aflipercept to dexamethasone, they both did well. Both groups did well. But the numbers that actually fulfilled that criteria of poor responders was so small that they weren't able to make any statistical inferences. So... What that says is that the overwhelming number of people do very, very well with anti-VEGF therapy. And the SCORE2 kind of provides you an interesting clinical framework on how to progress. So say you're like me, you start with bevacizumab, very easy to start there, move on to another anti-VEGF like a flipercept in this case. And then if we're still having a poor response, then you can go on to an intravitreal dexamethasone implant. And you know, I think in, RVO, you can kind of make these decisions pretty quickly. So if somebody's not doing well with bevacizumab after about two injections, I tend to move on to aflipercept. And again, two or three injections max. And if they're not doing well with the ILEA, then they're moving on to intravitreal dex. And I run through that algorithm pretty quickly. And that's sort of an extrapolated algorithm that I've come from, I've uh, come up with from basically score two. So uh, how long do patients with vein occlusion need to be treated and, and or monitored? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like the, the million dollar question, right? I, you know, I think we, we probably all have patients who have CRVO, lost a follow for five months, they come back and they look awesome. No macular edema, haven't needed treatment, no neovascularization. And then we keep watching them and then they never need treatment. Uh, but they needed it before they were lost to follow up for like six months. And then we have those who literally the moment they go, they're on a treat and extend and they're on every eight week injections. And the moment you extend them to nine weeks, they come back with macular edema and it endures for years. And so that's, that's the question, right? We don't have an imaging biomarker. We don't have a feature clinically that tells us how long we need to follow these patients. So that's kind of why I like the treatment extend for this reason is that because it provides us a, a sense that we're slowly and conservatively extending them out 12 weeks, 14, I'll even go out to 16 weeks. Um, and what I want to know is 
are they likely to recur during this window? And if they get out to every like 12 or 16 weeks for a few visits and they don't require treatment, then we'll observe them, you know? And I think, uh, you know, uh, Rishi Singh has always sort of talked about, well, maybe we're over-treating a lot of these patients. Maybe, maybe we should just be on a PRN basis up front because some people just don't need that level of intensity. And I think that's a very reasonable strategy as well. So this sort of goes into that art of medicine, right? We don't, we don't have a great treatment paradigm. It's not like one paradigm is better than other, but what we know is that we just have to kind of follow patients closely and patients also need to be aware of any changes in their vision, meaning monocular testing, covering one eye, covering the other eye, testing their vision regularly, and then being responsive with that if they worsen that they come back for treatment. You talked a little bit about the use of the dexamethasone implant. Yeah. Uh, uh, how frequently do you use it and what is your typical uh, scenario in which you would use it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, I've really noticed, I went back and somebody had asked me this question. So I went back and actually looked at my, my utilization of dexamethasone not too long ago. I almost, surprisingly, I almost never use it in BRVO which is kind of interesting. I was surprised by that. And I use it quite frequently in CRVO. And the interesting thing is a lot of the patients where I'm using it, they're either patients who've required long-term treatment and they keep recurring and they want to get out to a longer interval, or they're individuals who have just basically disease that is chronic or severe enough that they're not responding to anti-VEGF therapy. And I would say that uh, that's not a trivial number of patients. That's probably somewhere around 20 to 30% of my CRVO patients, which was kind of more than I had anticipated to be. So in the Regeneron clinical trials, there was a lot of emphasis placed on early treatment. Yeah. And, uh, and there was some tendency in the in the distant paths of, of observing patients for a while. Uh, yep. But if a patient's, this is an urgent scenario, correct? Uh, this, this is something where I would say urgent in the sense that they ought to be treated probably within a week or so of, of their diagnosis, correct? And, the, and we get this information from the registration trials that approved Lucentis and Ilea for, uh, for the treatment of because there was a sham group. And so what we learned actually in DME, RVO, AMD across the board, that if we wait a window of time, whether it's six months or a year, and then we switch them over into the treatment arm, well, that arm doesn't do as well as whether as if they had received treatment right up front. So there is a penalty to delay in treatment. And so as a result, you know, we don't follow the old BVOS guidelines that said, hey, wait a few months to let the hemorrhages clear. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? The reason why in the BVOS they were waiting to the hemorrhages to clear is because they're doing focal laser. And so, but anti-VEGF isn't predicated on good visualization of the macula. And so therefore it allowed for immediate upfront treatment. And we learned that delayed treatment actually was costly. Is there any room for laser in the treatment of branch vein occlusion anymore? So that's a great question. I suspect that the answer in the modern era is probably no. Uh, but the BBOS demonstrated a benefit 
uh, in patients who are receiving focal laser, but we know that there's no benefit in CRVO. I can't think of a retina specialist in the modern era who does focal laser for BRVO at this point in time, though. What about uh, management of neovascular, iris neovascularization and neovascular glaucoma? Yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's your approach to an eye with uh, these findings? Yeah, so the, the first step in those cases is always anti-VEGF. And so the anti-VEGF has an incredibly fast regression of neovascularization, and the goal is really to get it out of the angle. And so when we think about NVG, we really kind of want to break NVG down into three grades. Grade one is basically NVA with an open angle. Uh, grade two is essentially NVA with some intermittent peripheral anterior sneaky And then grade three is essentially neovascularization with a totally shut angle. And this is an important thing to differentiate, which means that retina specialists do need to hold on to their gonioscopy lenses. And the reason why it's valuable is because for grade one, I'm almost always managing them myself. They don't need to, I don't need to get glaucoma involved because I know the moment I get the anti-VEGF on board, I'm very likely to have a pressure reduction with that plus topical uh, drops. Grade two, it's a bit mixed. You'll win some, you'll lose some, and some will need to go onto tube. And then grade three, they uniformly go onto tube. So we can use that as a stratification for helping us understand they're likely to progressing onto uh, needing glaucoma drainage implant. And then, of course, anytime you do anti-VEGF, you have to realize that's a transient treatment of their neovascularization. So it has to be followed up with a very thorough PRP. So these are individuals, especially with CRVO, where I do essentially PRP starting relatively posterior. I try to use the FA to guide and treat, make sure I'm treating all the areas of non-perfusion. And I'll actually take it all the way up to the aura in these cases, because I've noticed that even after a good PRP, the neovascularization can return. What about uh, rolizumab for vein occlusion? Yeah, so the, it's not FDA approved um, at this point. And actually, interestingly, Novartis had uh, ceased their program uh, for, for retinal vein occlusion. So it won't be an approved indication for it. And uh, so I, I think this is something that we, we just won't be, we won't be using it for. Mm. It's, it's intriguing. It is a, it's a very powerful anti-VEGF agent. Yeah, it, it certainly is. But like with every, you know, there's always a risk-benefit analysis, right? And if you have a goal standard, uh, which is uh, essentially the uh, three anti-VEGFs that we have, two on-label, one off-label, that have set a track record of over a decade and a half of safety, it's really hard to argue with that, you know, where if you're having rare circumstances where there are circumstances where they may lose vision permanently as a direct result of the drug, it becomes difficult for practitioners to consider that as first line or second line. So you could say, well, certainly if Novartis went through the, the pipeline and said, hey, we're going to go ahead and do this study and we're going to try and make it such that we get it indicated for RVO. Well, if you failed uh, all of your other anti-VEGFs and, and dexamethasone, certainly I think it makes a lot of sense to have it in the, uh, in the toolbox, uh, but it's just not, not gonna be because I think their um, IOI rates were, were just too high in those studies.
Well, Yasha, thanks so much for joining us on Retina Synthesis and sharing with us your experience with uh, management of vein occlusion. It's uh, it certainly changed a lot in the last several decades. Yeah, yeah, and it's a fascinating thing. And we, you know, we we were talking earlier before this started about you know the the crazy part is there's the old and then there's the new, and we're doing all of this new research on on sort of prognostication. And it turns out probably the best prognostic factor is visual acuity at presentation. So there's always a room for understanding the history of where we are, and then also for you know trying to come up with new new theories and and, and new research ideas. Well, thank thanks again, Yasha. Dr. Pulisito, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.